0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: My name is Amparo Villablanca. I'm professor of cardiovascular medicine in the School of Medicine, where I'm very involved in our Women in Medicine program, having founded that uh, 12 years ago. And have been at this campus uh, since 1979 when I came here to be a medical student, don't tell anyone. Um, and really, it's it's been a pleasure during my career to see the changes that have occurred in this campus since I have been here. Um, and uh, still, though, however, recognizing that we have a ways to go. The panel that I'm going to moderate is a panel that will focus on strategies for assessing climate and for using assessment results, very much leading um, from uh, some of the comments that were made at the end of the last presentation. As we know, many quantitative and qualitative tools are available to to assess workplace climate. The panel members that are joining us today are very distinguished in their own fields and in this area. And we've asked them to discuss tools that are tailored to academic workplaces, consider the strengths and weaknesses of each, and recommend strategies to all of us for disseminating and utilizing the assessment results. In addition, the results of an analysis of race, ethnic, and gender differences among STEM faculty in the experience of workplace climate using a cross-institutional sample of COACH. Data will be presented. I will introduce and moderate the panel, and then after that, we will spend some time uh, answering your questions, taking your comments. If you could please hold those until after all of the presentations, and that will be moderated by my colleague uh, Susan Rivera. So I'll move uh, without further ado to our first uh, presentation, which is a dual presentation by Kiernan Matthews and Todd Benson. I would like to tell you just a little bit uh, about them. Uh, Kiernan Matthews is PI and Director of COACH, the Collaborative on Academic Careers in Higher Education at Harvard Graduate School of Education, uh, where he leads the COACH's strategic planning, research, and development. Prior to his work in the academy, uh, he launched new technology and education projects at a number of Other places, including the Lego Company, he earned his education degree in higher education management from the University of Pennsylvania, and his master's in education from Harvard. And his his presentation will be a co-presentation with Todd Benson, who is associate director of surveys and analysis at COACH. He um, served as a student affairs administrator for over 10 years. Before pursuing a doctorate in higher education leadership and policy, he has had prior roles in both the Office of the Associate Dean of Graduate Education for Peabody College of Education and Human Development, that's quite a mouthful, and the Vanderbilt Institute Institutional Research Group. At COACH, his work has expanded to advising institutions on the strategic use of data. Uh, Institutional change on issues relating to faculty and workplace satisfaction. And they will both discuss the advantages and limitations of using surveys to assess workplace climate, describe how this uh, coach survey is a tool for assessing climate, and present results from a specialized analysis of faculty uh, perceptions of workplace climate by race, ethnicity, and gender using a pooled set of COACH data from research-intensive institutions, and they will do all of this in 45 minutes. So it's my great pleasure to welcome you both.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for the introduction, and thanks to everyone for inviting us here. Um, Todd and I are so delighted and honored to be uh, with this distinguished audience. Um, We see many familiar faces Many familiar names who I'm happy to connect, finally, to uh, to faces. Uh, you have really inspired coaches' work and my work and Todd's work uh, for, for many years now. Uh, Linda Sachs, Douglas Haynes, uh, Susan Carlson, all, and many others. Meg uh, it's great to have all of you here, and, and really I'm, uh, I'm so honored to be among you. Uh, I'd also like to thank the University of California and UC Davis for hosting this, uh, you know, their hospitality and just the professionalism and everything has just been really outstanding. So thank you to, to Kim Shaman, uh, Maureen Stanton, uh, Linda Kitehi, uh, and and uh, Susan Carlson, and all your staff as well. So I really have to give uh, much applause to your staff for helping, um, you know, put this all this together. I'm not finished with my, with my gratitude. Um, <laughs> The National Science Foundation's Advanced Project is really the as the only I would say they're the elephant in the room. They're the only ones in the room na- uh, these days when it comes to mat- uh, really material, substantial support for the study of faculty. Um, you know, the Gates Foundation, the Lumina, the those big uh, foundations are really not putting uh, th- this kind of material support and focus on the faculty, which, as Gary Rhodes said, faculty working conditions are the student learning conditions, Uh, and so we have to focus on the former if we want to advance the latter. Um, And and 50 of these NSF advanced institutions, more than 50, have participated in COACH at some point. So um, today this is just a small repayment of our deep, deep gratitude to all of you, so thank you. So uh, we were invited to talk about using surveys and improving the climate for women and underrepresented minority faculty, um, and I'm sorry to tell you that no, surveys don't change a thing. Um, the theme is not what surveys can do, it really, because data don't take action. People do. So by including this quote uh, from a provost in their chapter on data use in the academy, coaches' founders, my mentors, Kathy Trower and Richard Chait, were emphasizing the importance of leadership. And we heard a great question from the audience about leadership. That data are useless unless someone with the power or resources to change things takes charge. Uh, Chaits and Trower's audience has long been university leadership. What should presidents do? Chancellors. And these days, those two are helping trustees and regents ask better questions, generative questions. What should boards do? Uh, and they're doing good work in that, in that regard. I joined COACH when it was just the study of new scholars uh, about 10 years ago, 10 years ago next month, actually, uh, when it was just a a survey of pre-tenure faculty, a critical point in the pipeline. And back then, we published reams of data, tables to help university leaders diagnose their faculty issues. Um, The data were exquisite, I assure you. And we put a lot of work into those institutional reports. But when leadership would turn over, or no one around that leader took to the results with the same passion or urgency, or if the, the leader delegated coaches' priorities to someone else who had 20 or 30 other priorities on their, on their plate, uh, or on too many campuses, however well-meaning, the leadership, that needle, didn't move. So I'm updating this observation for the next decade, uh, and I think NSF Advance has fi- been figuring this, certainly figured this out as well. Over 200 colleges and universities have participated in coaches' surveys of faculty job satisfaction since 2005, and we've learned from those who have changed the conversation. They are succeeding by what Birnbaum would call cybernetic leadership, uh, what Encona and others from MIT might call distributed leadership. Um, leading from behind, I've heard we uh, hosted a, a women's forum last year at the APLU uh, annual meeting, and one of our panelists uh, said, you know, leading from behind. It's, you know, women do this very well, and it's exactly how change happens in the academy. Unfortunately, it's a terrible career strategy. Positional power might make data potent, but what, what happens when no one's in line to drink it? Only broad and sustained engagement of faculty and administrators together make data's power kinetic. These are some of the lessons that we've learned. Uh, the success of Coach's mission to improve the recruitment and retention of underrepresented faculty really depends on this distributed model of leadership. So in the next half hour or so, uh, Todd and I would like to share with you Coach's perspective on using survey data like ours, not necessarily Coach, uh, to improve the workplace climate for the new faces of the academy. And given the firepower assembled here, uh, I won't waste the opportunity to ask you in the Q&A how we can be more effective in our work. So our research in this area began almost 20 years ago, uh, reviewing faculty appointment policies and guidelines to identify differences and similarities across institutions. Then came the study of new scholars with a great deal of foundation funding, at the time from uh, the Ford Foundation and the Atlantic Philanthropies, to support a new survey of pre-tenure faculty. There's over a million dollars in funding to support that work. That funding ran dry, so we've sustained our work by asking universities to pay for, to participate in this research, and what we now call the Collaborative on Academic Careers in Higher Education. We, uh, we've helped the AAMC build Coach for Med Schools in what is now called Faculty Forward, and we've expanded our own research to include all full-time faculty, uh, tenure-stream and non-tenure track. And at every step, we've incorporated data from extant research, focus groups, pilot phases, and always feedback from college leaders, faculty and administrative leaders, uh, so that now Coach isn't just a survey— it's actually a membership organization, a network of higher ed leaders and scholars focused on faculty. Nor is our survey just a climate survey. Uh, to borrow the distinctions from the Settle's pre-reading that we had, uh, it covers several of the general features of climate as they relate to policies, practices, and procedures, interpersonal uh, interactions, leadership, things pertinent to everyone climbing the ladder, Uh, But it does not cover, and this is just a distinction I want to make clear, our survey does not cover what Settle's called the specific experiences like harassment and discrimination. I'll get to those reasons why we exclude those in a minute. But if if our COACH survey suggests a broken rung, then deeper dives to identify uh, the right fixes are then warranted. We typically focus on the concrete and on the artifacts of institutional culture. So here are the themes from our survey. Uh, It takes about 22 minutes for a faculty member to complete. Um, some examples of the coach questions about the collegiality and inclusiveness of the faculty work, working environment are are such. I'll, I'll name a few. Are teaching and service assignments equally uh, equitably distributed? Where do faculty find mentors? Is mentoring effective? Is there support to be good, a good mentor? And we've learned that associate professors, this is a kind of the new realm, is that associate professors are not being mentored. You've already discussed mentorship, though, in, in prior roundtables. Are faculty engaged in conversations in their departments about student learning, pedagogy, technology, research methodologies? Are departmental colleagues intellectually vital, productive, and teaching effectively? Do faculty feel like they fit? Do departmental faculty pitch in when required? Is there personal, is there professional interaction? Is there collaboration inside the department, outside the department? Are tenure and promotion policies clear, consistent, and fair? Do faculty feel appreciated and recognized, or, and recognized for what and by whom? And then global satisfaction and, and departure uh, intentions that we cover as well. So now, as I mentioned, Coach does not ask questions about discrimination, hostility, and the like. So Coach, in some sense, is really not a diversity survey. Our original advisory board warned us that we'd be relegated to an under-resourced corner of the university if branded as a diversity survey. It's a sad fact, but it was uh, certainly true at the time. Also, we found that respondents quit the survey when we did start asking questions about discrimination and hostility based on gender, race, and sexual orientation. Through the cognitive studies we did, it seemed that people started to feel, oh, this isn't, the survey isn't really for me or about me, or they felt afraid to uh, express their feelings at that time in in those ways. Uh, So we do ask two questions about diversity writ large. Are departmental colleagues committed to promoting diversity and inclusion in the department? And then is there visible leadership for the promotion of diversity on campus? So across the survey, differences in specific experiences emerge in the disaggregation of the results. But because the instrument wasn't branded as a climate or a diversity survey, but as inclusive of all faculty, it's the coach faculty job satisfaction survey. uh, The results can really surprise, and surprises are how the audience, the faculty, get hooked and ask for more more pull and uh, less push of the data. Uh, and so we use this also, this, this uh, approach also helps us to answer that prior question uh, that Meg brought up. You know, are there obstacles? Well, yes, there there are. Let's start with that. So leaders then can use COACH as a kind of Trojan horse to begin to address gender or race issues among faculty, but in a very cybernetic way, that is by sort of letting the data lead, lead the way. Um, so other l- ways leaders are using survey data will be addressed by Todd, who is uh, going to talk to a little bit
2: to us a little bit about um, how we're seeing our data get used? So, um, before we get started talking about an example of how our data could be used to uh, look at climate issues, I want to go through some uh, uh, disclaimers. Uh, I think all good research should actually begin with the limitations, and and we like to be upfront about those. So um, the first one that I would mention is that uh, we are not building rockets, and um, that's particularly important when we talk about survey research in STEM disciplines, because you're working with people who really do build rockets. Um, In their world, a hundredth of a point may mean a huge difference. In ours, it's it's a little bit more squishy, and that's something that we need to be um, uh, respectful of. Um we think that it's important to balance the personality traits of the audience you're working with, with the data that we have and the limitations to it. Uh, The second thing I would mention is that uh, what we're going to talk about today is just one example of how the data could be used to provoke discussion on your campus. But it's just one example. We have uh, a minimum of 150 questions, upwards of 175 questions in our survey, uh, depending on the path that the, uh, the faculty member goes through the process. And, what we don't have is the, uh, the infrastructure and staff to analyze every possible path. That's where we need people like you. We need good researchers. We need committed administrators. We need the bodies that can go out and explore all the potential in this data. So as we continue the conversation, I want you to think about how could you possibly work with our data, uh, either as a scholar or as an administrator, uh, to help us to answer more questions. Um. The third thing that I would mention is that um, there's there's so much data in the summary tables that we provided uh, that looks at social sciences compared with uh, STEM and, and uh, compared with other faculty in general. But for today, I'm just going to talk about uh, STEM faculty. Uh, it's not because the other disciplines aren't important. It's just because we're, we're providing a sample here. Uh, and last, I think that the most important dis- dis- disclaimer for us is that What we're talking about here is not providing you with a perfect solution to your problem. There's no algorithm in our data set that is going to fix everything that that is wrong with uh, gender and and race issues in in STEM disciplines. We know that. Uh, But we see in the data the potential to have a much more uh, thoughtful conversation with your faculty. So uh, keep those things in mind as as we move forward here. So we decided today actually to talk about a a survey dimension that's a little bit different actually from the rest of, of the coach instrument. We're we're going to talk about sense of fit. And the reason that I say it's a little different is we tend to be pretty direct. We tend to ask, do you find policies to be clear? Do you find them to be effective? Um, you know, if you had to renegotiate the terms of your contract, what would you renegotiate? These are all things that have pretty clear policy implications. Fit is a little bit uh, less clear. Um, we ask faculty to rate their satisfaction on how well they fit in their department. And from that, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what does fit really mean? How do you improve fit? And what are the levers for improving fit in different audiences? So do women and faculty of color perceive fit differently than white faculty? But when we unpack this concept of fit, um, it helps us to guide the conversation with those audiences. Now, before we move into actually what we learned about sense of fit, I want to show you a a really quick slide about why it matters. So we ask, again, that question about sense of fit. We also ask faculty how long they intend to remain at at their institution. And so what you're seeing here is that of the faculty who are either somewhat or very dissatisfied with their sense of fit, over 50% do not plan to remain at their institution for more than five years. Conversely, over 50% of the faculty who say they're satisfied with their sense of departmental fit plan to remain there for 10 years or more. So if you're talking about issues of retention, I, I think this pretty much spells it out. I don't think you need a, a statistician to, to make this work. So when we started to look at this issue of fit, we started to say, okay, well, what items do we think might be most highly correlated? And so we began to, to run very simple correlations between sense of fit, and the uh, dimensions that are covered in the technical report, which was delivered to you. And when we looked at STEM faculty generally, we saw that uh, the amount of personal and professional interactions with departmental colleagues was highly correlated. The opportunities for collaboration within the department was also highly correlated. Recognition from chairs and from colleagues over work, and more specifically, recognition for scholarly work. So when we look at STEM faculty generally, this is what we learn. Now let's look at Hispanic and Latino faculty. Now here we see that recognition for different types of work come into play, so satisfaction with recognition for teaching efforts, for outreach, which came up earlier, in, I think, uh, in Meg's comments, as well as for student advising, which I'm guessing probably did not mesh well with the reward structures in most departments. Agreement that tenure decisions are based on based on merit, and the intellectual vitality of pre-tenure faculty in the department this was particularly strong for Hispanic men the amount of personal interaction and collaboration with pretenure faculty in the department, and last, satisfaction with mentoring from someone within the department. And that was particularly strong for uh, Latino women. When we look at other underrepresented minority faculty, this included African American and Native American, um, we generally uh, see that recognition for service contributions and outreach are more closely associated with FIT, but for women, those go further to include satisfaction with recognition for teaching, advising, and service. We see that satisfaction with mentoring matters to all underrepresented minority faculty, but one interesting note here is that men also associate fit with the institution's support for faculty to be good mentors. Next, there appears to be a strong relationship between fit and satisfaction with personal and prote- uh, professional interactions with pre tenure faculty. And then lastly, the perception that the institution's leadership is committed to the promotion of diversity and inclusion. So you can see when we get into these subgroup analyses that the picture of what it means to fit within your department is very different. Now, while that's interesting, that's not why we're actually here. What we're here to do is talk about what you could do with data like this in order to initiate change on your campus. We believe that quantitative data like this allows you to drive the qualitative process on your campus. Knowing that faculty of color associate sense of fit with different things allows us to ask better follow-up questions, uh, which can have different effects. It allows you to dial in your approach in ways that are more nuanced and more powerful. It frames your discussion. When you ask faculty good questions that are driven by their earlier responses, it shows that you're listening and you're giving them an opportunity to respond in ways that are meaningful to them. When we ask bad questions, or when we ask just generic general questions, whether it's in a survey, whether it's in a focus group, in an interview, or conversations over lunch, we run a greater risk of losing our audience before we ever get to the real issues. Think about that for a moment. When we ask the, the simple questions that are, are kind of broad brushed. What we've done is we actually created a risk of losing the opportunity to to go deeper. Using survey data to drive the qualitative research helps us to reduce that risk. Now, every time we ask faculty to talk about their experience, we're using their time and energy. We want to do our best to be efficient and respectful of that time and that energy. And when we do this, we're cultivating a climate that respects their experience. And those are powerful tools in change. Just the way that you explore these issues with your faculty is part of the process for improving it. So when we talk about effective uses of survey data, we talk about the importance of process. We talked about this uh, last night at at the dinner, that even the way that we administer our survey is part of the process. If you don't do that in a way that is thoughtful and respectful of your audiences, that um, is sure, to protect their confidentiality, that is uh, a, a process that shows why there's value to this exercise, then you're not going to get the data in the first place. We encourage uh, institutions, once they have this data, to use existing structures so that diversity work does not move to the periphery. So uh, an example that, that I would uh, mention is uh, something like academic program review. Now, I, I'm not in the STEM disciplines, Um, but I would suspect that much of the academic program review that happens, especially at programs like yours, is focused on productivity, um, particularly scholarship. And that's important. But what it fails to measure is the climate in which productivity happens. Why is it that some scholars are producing more than others? Why is it that some departments are more productive than others? Climate data helps you to understand what's happening that is helping your, your faculty either to succeed or to wither on the vine. We also talk about um, pulling your faculty in as opposed to pushing out data. If I see another data table go out to faculty and say, you know, here's the results, um, that just, it drives me crazy. Uh, and, I, and I say this because it's not the kind of conversation that we need to have we don't need to worry as much about, um, you know, making sure everybody has every mean by every disaggregation available to them. We need to talk about experiences, um, and we need to help institutions. And when I talk about institutions, I'm talking about administrators with faculty to make sense and make meaning of their data. That process, again, is part of of the solution. We also see that our data in particular... um, has been used to have constructive conversations at divisional levels. So uh, one of our uh, kind of uh, gold star member institutions, the the provost sits down with the deans and uses our data at the divisional level to say, what are going to be your three priorities for working on the climate in your campus? Um, Then once they set those priorities at the divisional level, they can actually use each other's divisions as partners. So when we have a shared problem, let's talk together. Or, when we have an exemplar let's use that as a model for figuring out how we can do things better in our division. The other thing that we encourage uh, our, our favorite analogy, analogy is to use the pedestal or the the pedestal, not the pillory. We all know how well uh, faculty respond to criticism um, I, don't, I don't think that um, you know i 'm not breaking any secret codes here um, but they, they do respond really well to praise. And so at the macro level, we search out for the institutions that are either doing better than everyone else or who have shown the most improvement over time. And we create uh, benchmark reports which focus on the practices that seem to be working there. We also get institutions who say, I've, I've selected these peers as, as part of my comparative report. And I see that one of them is doing really well. Can you tell me who they are? And then we help to build relationships between the institutions that they've selected as peers uh, and the uh, institutions that want to learn. At the micro level, you can do that with divisions and with departments. If you have divisions where faculty of color are doing really well, figure out why. Uh, Now, the one the one uh, caveat I would put in there is that sometimes they don't know why. Um, and that takes a little bit more of a deep dive, and that's okay. Um, But one of the things that we struggle with is sometimes we'll have institutions say, well, it's just in the water here. Well, if you're not going to bottle the water, I don't care. Um, It it doesn't change anything for anybody else. So the unintended consequences of our work. We we talk about um, the idea that a broad general survey like ours or like climate surveys from other uh, projects Um, can convey a message to your faculty that the administration cares about their experience. It's going to buy you some capital, but too often institutions waste that capital. Just collecting the data doesn't help. In fact, if you ask your faculty to participate in the project and then do nothing with the data, you may have actually caused more harm than good. So the next step in the process is to figure out what it is that you can learn collectively. And again, that's you, faculty, and you, administration. Does, it, does the data reflect their experiences? Have you collected data elsewhere, which helps you to triangulate your findings? We had a, a great uh, member institution this past year. They had collected data on their faculty for four years consecutively. We were the fourth year, and they finally said, oh, we should probably dis, uh, disseminate these findings. Wouldn't that be a great idea? And what they actually did, though, which ended up becoming more powerful, was they were able to take the four years of data and tell a compelling narrative about what was happening on their campus. And they couldn't just dismiss it and say, oh, it's, it's just the coach results, it's the way they asked the question. They had to say, we asked this in year one, year two, year three, and year four, and we're hearing the same story. Do you believe us now? Only when you, as administrators and faculty, develop some consensus about what the real problems are, can you start to move towards solutions. Now, as I said earlier, we are not rocket scientists, and we know that. And there are many uh, different religions about methodology and reporting. And the reality is that those conversations are important, but they shouldn't dominate things. So I just want to talk a little bit about some of the most common arguments that we hear uh, and, and a little bit about how we address them. Um, the first one is the wrong peers. And I think the, the problem with peers, um, it's, it's not that you don't want to benchmark, because it is important to benchmark. Uh, But what we do with benchmarking and and with peer selection is we focus on everything from, uh, you know, football divisions to uh, student data. And we don't think about peers within context. The reality is that when institutions select the correct peers, um, they're not really selecting the correct peers. They're, They're being conscious about the decisions with which they make those peer selections. So if you are an aspirational institution and you choose aspirational peers, come into the data uh, dissemination, sharing, and sense-making with a caveat that we went to schools that we want to be like, but we know we're not there. Those peers become your beacon. They guide you. But don't expect to do better than them because if you were doing better, then they wouldn't be your aspirational peers. Um, The snowflake argument um, is one of our favorites everybody can come up with 100 reasons why their institution is different. And the reality is that while it's important to have frank discussions about why you're different, they shouldn't drive the conversation. As I said earlier, we get lots of questions about methodology. In fact, one of the things that I do with uh, participating institutions in our project when we start to talk about their results is I say, if you have someone who is dominating the conversation with questions about methodology or sampling or whatever it is, they can have an hour of my free time to sit on the phone and, you know, wax methodology with them. And if they really want to do it, they'll call me. I've never had anyone take me up on that offer. So that, po- that begs the question, are they really concerned about methodology or are they concerned about not addressing the elephant in the room? Um, I think the other one, and this really, I think, ties into Meg's comments. What's wrong with them? Um, you know, when we have such a small number of underrepresented minority faculty or women in a department or a division, um, the, kind of the knee-jerk reaction when we see these high levels of dissatisfaction is to blame them. Um, we, we know that white men are, are less, you know, self-aware. Um, that was really covered well in an uh, article I read by uh, my wife and um, every woman I've ever dated. Um, LAUGHTER but um, you know, <laughs> sorry. Um, but the um, the reality is that data like this can start to shape that conversation because the conversations we have are not um, necessarily about. Uh, about the experience of, of underrepresented faculty as being kind of discriminated against and those things that, that Kiernan mentioned earlier, but because of how they're seeing the department, because of how often they're engaging in discussions, it becomes a much more uh, uh, pragmatic conversation. So how can we how can we make sure that our department uh, faculty are engaging in better dialogue about research methodologies? That's a lot easier for guys who are uncomfortable with the idea of saying, you know what, maybe we do have a problem with sexism or racism in our, in our department uh, than than it is to to say to them, we've got to fix this problem. They can't, they can't um, argue away those kinds of results. The other thing that we talk about a lot is statistical gymnastics. And we're just about get, getting ready to send out our institutional reports to the schools that participated in our survey this year. And I usually get about a week off before uh, they start calling me for uh, complex regression analyses and uh, wanting to take faculty from one department and move them into a different division because they don't really reflect that. And, and I don't want to get uh, too complicated. I, I just want you to, to think about the idea of when schools call me and ask me that question, my, my first response to them is, why is it important and how is it going to change the conversations that you need to have with, with those institutions or with those uh, departments and with those faculty? If it's not going to change the conversation in a meaningful way, don't waste your time. Uh, you know, we all talk about analysis paralysis. We can, run the, we can run the data six ways a Sunday, but it doesn't necessarily change what we're seeing. I think the other thing that we try and do is we provide uh, benchmarking data so that institutions can see, well, it's not just us. It's lots of other institutions dealing with the same kinds of issues. So... A couple of things that we've been doing more recently to make your data more powerful. So uh, pass-through variables are something we added this past, I guess, about two years ago now. And what they are is essentially data that you can append to your population file so that when you receive your response data back, you can actually link institutional data that you have to uh, to the coach results. So if you really want to see whether or not faculty who are most satisfied are also most productive, you'll be able to figure that out using academic analytics or Thompson's Reuters or, or whatever internal collection method you have for that. Uh, we also allow institutions to customize questions. In fact, um, a couple of examples of that to, uh, that I'd like to highlight. First is that the University of North Carolina system, one of our partners since the very beginning, uses their um, uh, coach survey as an opportunity to ask some system-wide custom questions so that they're being more efficient and more effective in the ways that they Uh, uh, collect information about faculty. Again, every faculty member's time is precious. So anything we can do to help you be more efficient in making those uh, connections is is always uh, appreciated. Another example that I thought was particularly interesting, um, we worked with uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, and for those of you uh, who are not familiar with it, they have a a division that is uh, particularly focused on deaf and hard of hearing faculty. And that's just not an area that a national survey is really going to dig deeply into. But they included a demographic question asking if you're deaf and hard of hearing. And they're analyzing the results by those distinctions to see how it is that they can serve that population better. So finding more creative demographics than what we provide is is a a great example or a great use of either pass-through variables if you've already got them or custom questions if you don't. Um, We also encourage people to think about uh, assessing the impact of interventions. So, if you created a pre-tenure uh, faculty workshop on you know, getting through you know, the middle years of the tenure process, ask them, did you participate? Was it effective? What were you missing? And, and add qualitative components to that. Ask open-ended questions. One of my favorite things to do, and actually, uh, we, one of the, the very last question we ask in our survey is, what's the one thing your institution could do to improve the workplace for faculty? And we read and we code every single one of those comments. And I'll tell you where it comes in play most often. It's the schools that are doing poorly everywhere and the schools that are doing excellent everywhere. How do you choose priorities when you're essentially getting, you know, C's and D's on every single dimension of a survey? How do you choose priorities when you're a straight A student? Well, the way you do it is by listening to the voices of your faculty, and those open comments give you that opportunity. And then the last thing that I would mention is the importance of networking. And this has really been the evolution of Coach over the last three to, uh, certainly the, the five years that I've been there. When we began, you know, we, we gave out these, these reports, as and described, and I, I joke that, that they're like the Bible. They're about 500 pages, and everybody says they read them, but no, they didn't. Um, they also cherry pick the pieces that they really think are going to drive their own agendas. But that's that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but um, the the new reports, the new way that we're, we're con- convening with institutions, uh, the new ways that uh, we're encouraging institutions to get together. So uh, in the, just in this past year, uh, we've been at the uh, liberal arts colleges down in Southern California, the Claremont McKenna schools, uh, We have been at the AAU data exchange uh, meeting. We have been uh, working with the SUNY system, with the CUNY system, with the UNC system. The power is not in what we can provide to those institutions. It's in convening like minded, caring, committed people. If for no other reason, then you probably need somebody to say, Yes, I'm having that experience at my campus too. And maybe you don't come to solutions that way. Uh, Maybe maybe it's just a, a chance to be kind of uh, have, have somebody to empathize with, but that process of convening groups is really powerful. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand over to Kiernan, um, who is uh, very gently nudging me uh, to, to wrap things up, and I know we've got lots of time for Q&A. So.
0: Thanks, Todd. I, uh, so you can see we collaborate, and we go back and forth, and with 45 minutes we wanted to try to spice it up a little bit. I mean, we're both you know, white guys in suits, but hopefully, uh, you know, we can give you something um, uh, to, to, to move the conversation forward. Um, so Todd has just shared some of the uses and reactions to survey data, but we can't talk about surveys if we don't address the limitations. And he talked about some of those. Um, I'm talking about the limitation of non-response. Uh, and this is what I'm particularly excited about sharing with you today. Uh, it's important because even an 80%, 80% response rate is no guarantee that your data are bias-free. Uh, and a 20% response rate could be perfectly suitable. Um, who doesn't respond to faculty surveys? I've spent the last two years tra- uh, tackling this question, and one that the Settle's article we had raised, uh, but no one has has answered. Um, what I've learned is that faculty who don't respond are, in many respects, the very faculty who are the targets of great interest in policy and research. They are more often non-white, non-citizen, uh, long-term associate professors, uh, and they're in the STEM disciplines. They are less likely to respond at urban, lower graduation, graduation rate schools. Uh, survey refusers aren't just missing from our data. They are actually disengaged from other expressions of university citizenship, like town halls and shared governance activities. This graph here represents the results of, uh, of looking at organizational citizenship behaviors by different uh, survey response behaviors. Respondents are those, obviously, who respond to, to the coach survey. Passive non-respondents are the ones who say they'll respond, but then kind of never get around to it. And the active non-respondents are the ones who say, I would never respond to this survey. And the reasons they say they won't respond is because, uh, you know, basically three out of four faculty say that the reasons they don't respond are they're too busy to complete them, they're a waste of time because nothing's ever done with them, or they just forgot about the invitation. It's mostly those first two. Um, Faculty silence is very rich in information. I think Chancellor Katehi said that this morning. So this is my plea, uh, is to do something demonstrably with the results. I'm driving home this this point that Todd made. Uh, Be explicit frequently about the the data that are driving the actions that you're taking. Tell them, we did this because you told us in the survey to do it. Uh, Another lesson I've taken is that there's no capital F faculty. If you've met one faculty, you've met one faculty member. Um, so, th- this work requires a lot of retail, uh, department by department, and that's where the non respondents are. And that's where the non respondents are in the department. They're not at your ice cream socials. Uh, it's also clear from our survey data that there are not three, but actually four ladder ranks there's pre tenure, but then there's newly tenured, and then the long term associate. Uh, and then there's full, and there might possibly be kind of the nearly retired full and the younger full. But those long term associates are the least satisfied, and the institution bears much of the responsibility and the blame. For them, uh, for that outcome, I think it also raises some questions about you know what is this this expectation of full? Is it do we do we really expect every associate professor to come up for full? It's a tough. Some some people think no. Um, non tenure track faculty can no longer be excluded from the conversation. You're seeing great work with a Delphi project at the University of Southern California looking at part time. We're just turning our data to uh, our instrument to examine uh, full time. Uh, non-tenure-track faculty, who in many respects are more satisfied than their tenure-stream colleagues. Uh, their, their roles are more clearly defined. Uh, there isn't this kind of expectation to be the perfect everything. Uh, chairs matter, but you know this. Uh, most institutions don't develop their chairs to be leaders, uh, but you've seen the case for chairs, in, again, in, in some of the pre-readings that, they, that we had. The last thing is that the most important analysis that we do, uh, it doesn't happen it's in STATA, SAS, or SPSS. It happens when people get together, look at the main findings, and ask, what sense do we make of this? That's The, the analysis is a social act, uh, and so it must be engaged with faculty and administrators together looking at this, this slide on the wall and saying, does this reflect who we are or what sense do we make? And so meaningful stakeholder engagement is critical throughout the coach process, and we start months before the survey launches, from priming the faculty and administrator communities to gathering data to disseminating and sense-making and celebrating and in improving. Uh, we learned all of this by watching our best institutional partners really change the conversations on their campus. Susan Carlson did great work at o- Iowa State, and I won't take any credit for it. It was her leadership, but the data helped, I hope. Uh, we've also learned that this, meeting, this meaning-making process is hard work. So Coach, uh, we at Coach are really excited about our future. For example, next year we will, for the first time, have longitudinal results at the faculty unit level. With these data, you, and you, I mean you, you can request these data through our IRB processes. Uh, You can know whose uh, whose satisfaction with departmental climate is really improving, who is less likely to leave now than they were three years ago, where departmental climate is actually improving for women and underrepresented minorities. And our population data will tell us whether and where the proportions of underrepresented faculty are improving. Often institutions, many of the institutions we work with, don't even know. They can really actually track the, the proportions, uh, and they're not uh, reporting it effectively to iPads. We also need to learn more about faculty departures. Uh, these past few months, we've been looked into university exit interviews for faculty. Uh, the results are mixed, to say the least. Uh, first, the academy has still not developed a real taxonomy of faculty departures, something more meaningful than just voluntary versus involuntary. Who was counseled out? Who left the academy entirely? Who traded up? Who traded down? And who is taking the early retirement incentive? What can we learn from those faculty about getting to a place where it's okay to retire? Uh, The upshot of our preliminary study in this is that the work is inconsistent and the number is usually too few to identify patterns for underrepresented groups. Do Some groups of faculty leave for different reasons than others. So until a consortium or system agrees to share protocols, methods, and data, perhaps through coach, maybe not, um, we just won't know. In the meantime, I encourage you to look at the work of Carrie Ann O'Mara at the University of Maryland, uh, another advanced site. Uh, She's piloting some very promising work on faculty departures and broken psychological contracts, and I encourage you to, to follow that work. So Coach continues to evolve from a survey to a service, from focusing on faculty work to helping solve institutional challenges. And Todd and I have just described several fronts we can take together. Uh, to gather more and better data about faculty. But what we've heard from our advisory board is that they are, and from all the, the provosts and presidents and faculty we work with, is that they're up to their eyeballs in data, and what they need is more meaning. This is the sound of the big data bubble bursting, and you've read about it in other uh, in other sectors, I'm sure, by now. Uh, we think it's really an opportunity for an organization, a system, or foundation to be in the business of synthesis by helping higher education leaders and faculty leaders uh, connect multiple data sources, not just survey data, uh, to understand and to advance their faculty. I would call these this this opportunity not for analysts but for faculty data strategists. And I'm actually inspired by the work of Tom Kane at our my home institution, um, uh, the Graduate School of Education at Harvard, his strategic data project, where you'll see this something like this starting to play out in the K twelve uh, in the K twelve space. But the final thought or question I'd like to leave you with, though, is um, is this. Uh, first of all, Coach Data are at your service. I think Todd and I have made that point. We have demographic information on international faculty, on LGBT, on family status and dual career. We just, we're three FTE at, at, at Coach. We can't do it all. We need your help. Um, but I'd like to ask you, though, is what can we do better or differently? What's the one thing we need to add to our survey? our research methodology, our approach, that will get you the answer that you've never had. You are the ones driving this work. Uh, so, But if you raise your hand and offer a suggestion in the Q&A, I'll, also, I'll respond by asking you, OK, what would we do with that information? Because that's how we get, I think, the responses we do from faculty is because they answer the survey and they, they sense, OK, I can understand why I'm being asked this question in the first place. It's not merely interesting to us as researchers. These data are really actionable. Um, because the answer isn't going to change the world, but I believe working together, we really can make changes. And I'm so in- encouraged, actually, by everything I've heard today about the cha- that change really can happen. Uh, so thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Kiernan Matthews and Todd Benson, two guys in suits who really did a fabulous presentation and I think so much food for thought there and great tips for all of us. Uh, again, a reminder to please hold your questions and comments to till the end of the panel. I'd like to now introduce our next panelist who's um, Dr. Ala Kibaj, who's Vice Pro- Provost for Faculty Affairs and Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Texas Pan American. Uh, he is uh, the lead co-PI and project director for the uh, for UTPA's advanced project funded by NSA uh, in 2012, which focuses on increasing their representation and advancement of women in STEM fields. Before joining UTPA in 1999, he worked at the University of Oklahoma, where he received his Ph.D. And he will discuss the advantages and limitations of using in-depth interviews to in- investigate workplace uh, climate for c- targeted populations how the interview process with the faculty at UTPA was conducted, the content of the interviews, and recommendations for using this methodology to assess workplace climate for faculty,
3: all in 15 minutes. Welcome. Thank you. One more guy. Uh, I want to apologize. My voice, I'm a little bit under the weather, but I didn't want to miss this opportunity. So I'm glad I have things on the PowerPoint so you could... You know, use both. Uh, again, like, uh, you know, uh, mentioned, you know, again, I share with you our experience with doing the in depth interviews and uh, my background. I'm a professor in mechanical engineering. So, whatever recommendations I'm making here, or I try to validate that from the literature. So, to make sure that we are giving the right advice, you're going to see also some literature reference there. Uh, as it was mentioned, actually, we have an advanced grant at UTPA. We started with the folks at UC Davis, and we have been collaborating with them and learning from each other, which has been really helpful to us. Uh, you know that you know the the purpose of the advanced grant. Actually, since we are a Hispanic-serving institution, we are focusing on on Hispanic faculty and and Hispanics. So this is one of our focuses in in, in this grant. And also, we have you know you know. Uh, major areas and components. One of it is recruitment, advancement, education, and empowerment, as well as policy and, and climate. In our case, actually, you know, the, a major component is the policy and climate, and the goal is to promote a positive workplace climate along with family-friendly policies. Uh, actually, we are working on two fronts there. You know, one of our focuses, and we are doing these in parallel, is establishing the family-friendly policies or the family matters policies because we didn't have anything of that. I know the UC system is is well ahead of us, you know, ahead of the UT system in in that. So we have been working on establishing the dual career, you know, hiring, you know, maternity, paternity leave and all these because we think, you know, for creating a positive climate, you know, for women, you need to have these type of policies and policies is, is really key for that. And also, we are doing also the climate assessment, and we are trying to come up with interventions. We did climate surveys. We did also in-depth interviews with current faculty. And Kern and he also talked about the exit interviews, and we did that. And we found actually that even the exit interviews was, were more helpful to us than, the, than the, 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 the interviews with the current faculty because it gave us, you know, more, you know, deep look and what, what's going on. Actually, the way we structured our climate assessment, we used a framework, and the framework we used is the psychologically healthy workplace f- framework focusing on five areas, growth and development. You know, are we giving our faculty and our employees the, the opportunity to, to enhance their skills, to grow and develop? Involvement. Karen also talked about citizenship. Are they part of the decision-making? They, do they feel they have autonomy and they are engaged? Recognition, are we reward, rewarding them and recognizing them for their achievements? Health and well-being and work-life balance. So these are the focus areas based on the, on, on that uh, framework that we are using. Now, the way we conducted, you know, we invited all STEM women and Hispanic STEM men uh, via the email. We had a 57% response rate, so we interviewed about 50 uh, we send them, you know, along, you know, once they accepted, we send them a brief interview survey basically to give the basic socio-demographic data. You know, one of the things we've done, which, is, which I think we discovered that, you know, this is a drawback, for, you know, one of the limitations or disadvantages from our approach, we used actually two faculty members from our advanced team to conduct the interviews. In terms of the place, we, you know, we asked the interviewees to choose the place, could be in their offices, in other campus location, you know, we asked them to sign a consent form, you know, and 48 out of the 50, you know, agreed for their interviews to be recorded and transcribed. You know, this is one of the disadvantages. I'm going to talk about it. You know, those interviews range from 45 minutes to three hours, you could see. see. And even though we had only 15 questions and those questions were formulated based on the framework Plus, actually, we asked for their personal experiences in terms of their relationship with students, with staff, with their faculty colleagues. And, of course, we've ha- we had open-ended questions. So the questions were not too much, but it, it, it's, you know, it, it's time-consuming. Now, one of the things I've asked to, to give is, you know, give you the advantages and disadvantages. Or, now, one of the bras, of course, for the in- interviews is flexible scheduling, spe- especially that we did it with internal people. Of course, it's inexpensive. Again, we use our internal resources for that. And I think Karen, he, ca- you know, and told, he, he, touched on this. Actually, we were able to capture some personal, professional experiences in terms of perceptions and insights. In in terms of allowing us to to understand the department climate and going deeper, you know, into at the micro level beyond what we can get from just a survey. Now, the cons of that, actually, the downsides are it's time consuming. I mean, it just when you take about. Talk about three hours. It's a lot of time. And also, one of our downsides, and actually is using internal interviewers because, and actually I've checked the literature also because there is potential for reduced candidness you know, due to the fear of being identified, and also there is potential for what they call confirmation bias, where basically the interviewers may prompt for certain responses based on certain knowledge or bias. So actually, the next time we're going to bring somebody from the outside to do it. Another thing which we've done, I think Kernan, he touched on that, and we found actually more helpful than the interviews with the current faculty is the exit interviews. And the process for that is that all tenure-tenure-track faculty leaving the university are invited, and actually we're going to extend that to non-tenure faculty, because you mentioned those are very, you know, important part of the faculty, but we started doing that with tenure-tenure-track. You know, again, we send the invitation via email with pre-interview questionnaire survey, you know, we had about 60 to 70% response rate. I am the one who conducted those interviews, you know, which is, again, it, it takes time. And I try to keep it within the one hour, but sometimes it took more than that. Now, the broads for, for this, for the exit interviews, as compared to the interviews with the current faculty, we were able to get more candid feedback because those faculty are leaving the institution. They are willing to say things that our existing faculty who are on tenure track, I mean, are not willing to, to share. And it did allow for a better understanding of the departmental climates, of why those faculty are leaving the institution, you know, and what are our faculty retention issues, because this is key. And we've heard from Meg, I mean, if a faculty member is leaving, especially if that faculty is a productive faculty member, we need to understand why this faculty member is leaving the institution, and that will give us the insight of of things related to the climate. Of course, the downside is time-consuming again. Now, some of the recommendations that I want to share with you, and again, I try to validate. I'm not an expert. I'm, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer. So, uh, but I try to, but we've learned from advance. This is one of the advantages of advance. You know? We've learned you know, through working in advance, and I try to validate those. Use the framework to formulate the questions and access the climate. Otherwise, especially with the in-depth interviews, it's going to take hours. Or so. so that will allow you to focus you know, on, on certain dimensions of the climate, so that has proved to be successful. Again, assure and reassure confidentiality and anonymity to mitigate fear of being identified. Record and translate interviews. Again, that has been, you know, proved in the literature to be very effective in in data interpretation. Use external interviewers. I mean, you know, this is from our experience and also I'll check the literature and, you know, as opposed to internal ones. Again, for the two reasons I mentioned, to assure confidentiality and to limit confirmation bias. Another thing is that supplement with exit interviews. As I mentioned, exit interviews will give you more insights that you may not be able to capture through the interviews with regular faculty members. Again, I think Todd, he touched on this. So triangulate the data using different sources, the climate survey, the interviews with the current faculty, the interviewed with exiting faculty, and also have multiple people look at the data. You know, so, so this is really also key. Another very important thing that we found to be effective, and actually it's also in the literature, is that using the interviews as a positive intervention in and of itself. Like by asking questions, what can the university do to ensure that you continue to be successful at this institution? What can we do to, to make sure that you stay at this university? Because these things you know, act as powerful evidence of support. And this is part of the positive climate, because if people feel that they are supported, we care about their success. We care about their well-being. I think that, that contributes, you know, significantly to a positive climate. And finally, act on the climate assessment, as it was mentioned by, by everyone, and develop systematic interventions at the various levels. And actually, this last recommendation, it's a good segue to, to you know, to the next presentation. And I think this is the, the I was telling, you know, Rene, that your part is harder, because that's the hardest part of, of this is, you know, because we have all the data, you know, Trying to, you know, to develop interventions is the hardest part of, of all this. So with this, you know, I mean, this is some of the references, and uh, I thank you for that. And uh, if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer after the last presenter. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, and for getting through that with your cold and uh, coming all the way over here um, to give us uh, your insights and uh, keep us on, on time. Uh, Next will be uh, Renee Navarro. Uh, Renee is Vice Chancellor for Diversity and Outreach and Professor of Anesthesia and Perioperative Care at UC San Francisco. She is the first African-American woman to hold a vice chancellor position at UCSF. Working as Associate Dean for Academic Affairs in the School of Medicine, she championed the needs of women and underrepresented minorities, which led to her selection as the first director of academic diversity at UCSF. She has been honored for her leadership by the mayor of San Francisco with the J. René Navarro Day in San Francisco, and I think she is my only colleague to have a day named after her. <laughs> uh, René will discuss the strategies and procedures used at UCSF to interpret and disseminate the results of institutional climate surveys, use the results to inform policies aimed at improving workplace climate, and engage faculty in the interpretation, dissemination, and policy making process. And we have given you a tall order, indeed. And thank you so much for doing this in fifteen minutes. <laughs> so thank you, thank you very
4: much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I think for me too, it's a pleasure to be a part of the of this advanced process. I came to UCSF thirty-two years ago um, as a medical student, and so this is a really a far cry from some of my experiences over that 32 years, so it's great to see the university um, system-wide engaged in these in these activities. So I have the opportunity this morning to share with you kind of from the ground level some of the things that we've done at UCSF over the course of the last 12 years around faculty climate um, assessments. I became engaged in this when I joined the faculty in 1990. Um, I started to ask questions about, wow, why was I the only woman in my division of anesthesia and perioperative care at San Francisco General Hospital? and Why was I the only of two uh, African Americans in my department of 90 faculty? And so um, when you start to ask a lot of questions, you get pulled in and have to sort of work on trying to define some of the solutions. And so um, we're going to focus a bit on kind of how do you communicate... um, How do you communicate the results of your climate survey? How do you use those results to formulate actions? And then how do you involve both the administration and the faculty in making sure that those actions uh, move forward? So our first climate survey was in uh, 2001. And it was not a coincidence that, in fact, the vice chancellor of academic affairs at that time was Dr. D. Bainton, the first woman to serve in that role. And in 1987, she had become the first woman to chair a department in the School of Medicine. And so um, we we started off thinking about, well, what's the climate like for women? Uh, And she got early endorsement from our chancellor, which was really key to moving these efforts forward. The engagement of an outside consultant at the time, there was not coach, there weren't other sort of products available, and we went to an outside consultant who came to our campus and really worked with us to define our survey because, of course, we feel like we're a snowflake. Um, we are very different from other institutions. We are a graduate-only you know, institution, and it's uh, focused entirely on health. And so the outside consultant came in and worked with us, worked with our uh, assistant uh, chancellor of research, and got the faculty engaged early on, especially those faculty who had expertise in survey design and implementation. And that early engagement both assured the faculty that they could be a part of asking the right questions and that it would have the kind of rigor and reliability that we could then formulate decisions uh, and actions based on the data uh, that we get from that. So some of our uh, key strategies, uh, once you actually implement a survey, and it, this has been said really by, by, by both Todd and Kiernan, that you actually have to provide information and communication back to the campus um, in a fairly quick turnaround time. Getting that data back to the campus assures that, in fact, their time, it's a respect of the time and efforts that they've put in to actually answering the the survey. And then the faculty look to see, well, what's going to happen? You know, we have a long history of having things that are Know, sitting on our shelves sort of collecting dust and so you want to build confidence in fact that your participation is valued and valid and that we're going to to have actions based on on the data so what we did at UCSF was we uh, the chancellor charged a, a task force on the on faculty life and he asked this task force to go in and look at this data and really come up with some of the, the high-level key Uh, Themes that emerge from the data, and what are the things that we could actually do to implement change that directly address that information. It was time-limited task force, and they were, you know, charged to to come up with these actionable items, and it was done in a very visible way, again, communicating to the campus that we don't have the actions yet, but we have a process that's transparent, people could get engaged in the process, and that we're looking for some solutions uh, to, to that. Interprofessional across all of our schools is really important across all of our academic series, faculty ranks, uh, gender, uh, etc. And then really maintaining the focus once you get into the data to really maintain the focus as to why you've actually started the survey and not sort of get sidetracked or really looking just to confirm your pre survey bias. So this task force worked. Uh, very diligently and came up with, oh, in about a six-month time period, 10 priority items that they they identified um, uh, for the chancellor. And the chancellor came and met with the task force group and uh, said, well, they, he agreed with the first priority, which was that there be a core committee. And we talk about the infrastructure being a part of the regular functioning of the institution. And it was at that time that the chancellor charged the, the the Chancellor's Council on Faculty Life, the CCFL, um, was a result of this. And then they had the, the responsibility to look at the other priorities and come up with what the actions are. The recommendations included investment, you know, having more flexibility, transparency uh, of the promotions process. Having departmental mentoring was a key thing that came up in our survey um, uh, very early on. And then, how do we do our faculty searches and have opportunities for leadership uh, within the uh, school and for women in particular? But we, we learned, um, again, looking at our pre, pre-survey bias, that, in fact, men had a lot of these same concerns. Work-life balance is, was important as well. Having more flexibility, also important. Having child care available to them at the work site, these are all things that are, lead to the satisfaction of all faculty. And that was reassuring, and we communicated uh, those findings as well. As we started to, uh, to sort of report out the findings, identifying who the audience is and how they want to receive the data I think is an important component, not just throwing out numerous charts, but really figuring out how do you tell the story such that this particular group or audience can understand the story and understand the impact. So in talking to the chancellor's executive cabinet, for example, you really talk in terms of retention, your ability to retain, and what's the return on investment or the cost when you lose a faculty that you've, uh, you know, you've recruited, and now you're losing that faculty that has a very specific cost associated with that, and that was very helpful in helping them understand the importance of this uh, formalization of this task force. Again, I said was uh, a very important, and that provided for a critical mass of faculty. Uh, some administrators who were working together to engage this over the long term. And then as we went out to the campus, or as they went out to the campus to present the data, identifying how the faculty wanted to hear the data, we did do disaggregation so that you could see, you know, that it wasn't the same across departments within a school or from one school to the next. And this was an important um, part of our process of transparency and communication. So Again, you have to show action. And so very quickly after the task force made their recommendations to the chancellor, the chancellor was prepared to act. Right, So the chancellor had actually designated budget dollars that were going to go to making a difference. And some of the key, highly visible programs that were implemented as a result of this included our faculty mentoring program. They established a faculty mentoring director after an internal campus search. 50% support time for this person, Mitch Feldman, came and presented at uh, the previous uh, previous roundtable. We had this program for new and junior faculty and rolled it out throughout the campuses. All the deans were on board. Department chairs were requested to uh, engage a facilitator in each of their departments. So there was a, a campaign that went around this that, again, was very visible. It showed what the support was from the level of the Chancellor's Office, the central administration, but also down to the deans and to the level of the department chairs. Leadership opportunities and training was another area that was identified as a problem. And women particularly had said that they wanted opportunities to gain additional leadership skills. And someone had said, you know, we don't train our chairs or division chiefs necessarily to be leaders. They're not promoted for those reasons. They're promoted because of their scholarship. And so how do you then help them with the skill set they need to actually lead and manage? So we went out and um, worked with a lot of different groups, but identified and established a contract with the uh, Coro Center for Civic Leadership. So Coro came to our campus and, and developed a program specifically for our faculty that we are still working with them now 12 years later, and that we run a leadership. So now we have a choral collaborative. We have choral grads. I think we have a couple choral grads here with us today from our campus. And that's a group of highly engaged faculty who are then, once they're, they've gone through this leadership training, it's male and female, all ranks, all schools, all academic series. They, too, uh, understand what we need to do on our campus, and they're a part of this engaged core that helps to move things forward. The faculty development programs were expanded. And even the child care issue, we recognized we were getting ready to build a whole new campus at Mission Bay. There was not a child center even thought about in those plans. And so the work of this really fed into that, and actually we have a child care center there now. Subsequently, uh, Ten years later, we did a repeat of this climate survey. We used the same tool, uh, essentially the same. There was some slight variations to the tool so that we could have some comparative data. And we see that over that same period of, over that 10-year period of time, the proportion of women faculty went from 36 to 44%, and we were quite uh, uh, pleased with that. We had a 61% response rate, so again, faculty are still engaged in taking these surveys but as you break it down by academic series, the five academic series, you can see we still uh, lag behind. We had some progress in ladder-ranked tenure track. Women are overrepresented in the non-academic Senate series. So we still have work to do on our campus, but we have the data and to, to actually look at that very critically. So after building sort of a... a buy-in to the fact that surveys matter and that this is an important way to move things forward on our campus. We embarked upon our role in the system-wide climate survey, and we were able to obtain a 47 percent response rate from our family. System-wide, our campus was a 49 percent, 48 percent response, which was the largest of any of the campuses um, within that uh, process. So we have this data now, and we're Currently, in the process of really going through the data and disaggregating the data to get the important uh, attributes for our faculty from that, but they are confident that they can participate in this and uh, that there'll be some measurable outcomes as a result of our uh, assessment and analysis of this data, and they're part of that process. So, just to, to close, I know my time is up, but. Just to close, just some of the promising practices. Leadership matters. And these are things that have already been said. So I just want to uh, sort of reiterate the fact that having the leadership at the top of the organization, saying that this is important, and then holding people accountable for it, I think is a really uh, key component. Our, our chancellors are on board. We have a president now within the UC system who is is very much on board with this. And so how do we then cascade that throughout our organization? Of course, communication. Be strategic in your communication and as to what will resonate with people and how they can hear the information. Uh budget. You know, you want to make sure that if you're going to embark upon this assessment, that you're going to have the budget to actually implement, you know, changes. Because there's obviously nothing worse than than you know assessing and, and doing nothing. You actually hurt yourself more. So you want to manage your expectations around that. And then the infrastructure again was stated, you want to have this embedded. This is not a standalone, you know, diversity thing. This is sort of core to who we are as an institution, and the more that you can embed it into the structure, then the more successful you're going to be over the long term, and then the visible actions that people can really say, and you want to, like you said, be explicit. Because of the survey and we've identified these challenges, these are the things in the programs that we're implementing, and that, too, helps to um, move actions forward more successfully. And that's it. Thank you.
2: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.